0: This is HRT, a podcast featuring interviews with HR leaders, researchers, students, and influencers. HRT takes trending topics in research and research in human resources, steeps them for 30 minutes or less, and leaves you with fresh, brewed ideas on how to drive high-performing, inclusive organizations and create meaningful work experiences. HRT is brought to you by Villanova HRD, the Graduate Programs and Human Resource Development at Villanova University.
1: everyone. Welcome to HRT. I'm your co-host this season, Helen Nelson, and I'm happy to join Bethany Adams on this journey through our theme this season, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Today, we're chatting with Tracy Burmese, IBM's global diversity and talent leader, about the intersectionalities that employees bring to the workplace, employees as parents, employees as caretakers, and We'll also delve into IBM's commitment to DEI work. Oh, and did you know that DEI could be sexy? I always had a hunch, but Tracy tells us why. Have a listen. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I know your current work is as the global diversity and talent leader for Black employees at IBM. And and so that's where you are now. But give us kind of the windy road. I meant to do that story.
2: Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting journey. So I'm a sociology major. So I went into sociology, wanting to understand the people, the communities, and took that to go into marketing. And so I've been a career marketer for over 20 years. There are a lot of random pivots and twists and turns. And then I kind of wanted a career break, right? So after like six, seven years, I went to grad school, went to university of Michigan and got my MBA there. And going in, I was pretty focused in what I wanted to do next. And I said, I want to work for Pepsi. And thankfully it happened. And so I went over to Pepsi after graduation and worked in what we call cultural branding. And from there, I got the call to come down to Texas. So my husband's career took the lead and he was on faculty at University of Texas. And I was eight months pregnant when I moved here. And I literally commuted back and forth for almost two years to my office in New York with the newborn into toddlerhood. And one of my classmates from Michigan called me over to to IBM and recruited me in. And one of the things I said going into my career is I'll never work for like GE, IBM, Pitney Bowes, some of those technical companies, because growing up in Connecticut, that's where everyone worked. Like all your parents worked there. And I was like, no, I want to do fun, sexy stuff. And- Now I'm doing the fun, sexy stuff, but in a completely different way. And so I feel like I'm back at my roots, supporting community work. And
1: yeah, I'm loving
2: every bit of it. I feel like I found my happy place in corporate again.
1: That's awesome. So this is the first time of, you know, DEI series where we've heard DEI work be described as sexy. And so tell us what makes it so sexy because I agree.
2: I mean, it is, it's ever changing. It means different things to different people. I think what I love about it on our team, we each own a community. And so I'm the leader of the black community but I have colleagues that cover Pan-Asian, LGBTQ community differently abled, Hispanic, women's, like we've got seven communities that are defined that have an HR leader, right? And then we support our local BRGs who are, those are the groups that are employee run. But it's, it's sexy because there's, it involves so much. So I'm touching social justice in a way that I've never worked with. I talk to government affairs and compliance on a regular, we're influencing laws. We're making sure that we're partnered with other companies in tech space and in other industries to influence laws that are being passed. The bathroom bill that was passed here in Texas was a huge move, right? So we're trying to get that passed across the country. Anti-hate crime passed, bills passing in South Carolina. So it's a lot of different work. And then also working with, you know, our P-TECH program, which is like a dual degree. So diploma, high school diploma and an associate's degree. And so we've got those schools all over the country and internationally as well. So I just enjoy helping people also with their careers. And I love giving unsolicited advice. So now I feel like I'm getting paid to give solicited advice. It's it's awesome.
1: That's amazing. And, and just, you know, you touching on all the ways in which IBM recognizes difference and not only recognizes difference, but bakes that into the business. It feels like there's such an intentional DEI practice that's already happening there. It's not just like performative, which is extremely important. You described a really rich background in marketing and advertising. And often in DEI work, we talk about intersectionality. So I just want to do a quick like little twist on that and just talk about your background, marketing and advertising meeting DEI work and what does it mean to bring that superpower to this work?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you, you hit the nail on the head, right? So when you think about even going back as far as sociology, and you think about different communities and you think about how there's no homogeneous community anywhere. I recently had a conversation with some internal clients and one person that made a comment about the Hispanic community. And really drew a hard line in differentiating the two. And I don't think she realized it until I said, Oh, yeah, you know, my my husband's half Puerto Rican and Black. My children are Hispanic as well. And, you know, it really was a light bulb moment, and people don't realize how much crossover there is. That's one of the things I'm really looking forward to working on, is working with my colleagues and figuring out and developing programs that really bring that to light. It's not just the Black community here, the Hispanic community there. You know, so I think that that's that's the important piece and what marketing and advertising allows you to do is really understand how to segment our market, right? Or how do we segment our employees or our teammates? There's a lot of crossover there within those segments as well. And so I think it's enabled me to say, you know, my BRG in Costa Rica needs this, which is very different than what my BRG in Germany needs or what they need, you know, in Baton Rouge. And so it's important to understand those dynamics, understand also the cultures that exist within those local communities and within those different cultures.
3: I love too that your career journey has kind of been this intersectionality, right? Between marketing and then dei and sociology kind of all coming together in what you do you know it's interesting the intersection between marketing and hr is so strong and i don't think that enough hr people talk to their marketing people enough marketing people talk to their hr people and really the intersectionality between that and adding in this dei is just the human element of what business is
1: yeah and it's it's
2: it's kind of funny because I'm breaking all sorts of HR rules and laws on a regular basis. And I get to keep saying I'm new. I've only been here for three months. What do you mean? I can't email everyone and tell them what's <laughs> happening. What do you mean we can't bring in this talent to do this performance? Like I'm, I'm still like playing dumb
3: That for three years, 10 years, just keep breaking all the rules. Cause that's what we need. That's awesome.
1: We just, closed our ears slightly, but we're here for the disruptions. So what's your DEI soapbox? So a soapbox is any particular like DEI topic or subject that makes you passionate or or gets you really fired up to discuss or, you know, gets you out of bed in the morning. It's the, the part of your job, if there are parts that you've identified with that you love versus like, but yeah, what's your DEI soapbox?
2: I think I jumped on the box a little earlier. So it is the intersectionality of what we do in that type of work. A lot of our conversations and in, internally it's before I was even in this position, but right in June when we talked about when George Floyd was murdered, allyship became huge, right? So we had talked about it at IBM before. IBM's not new to the multicultural space from an HR perspective, right? Or diversity, like they've been doing this for decades but there was a shift that happened in that it's not just HR anymore. Every business unit is standing up their own task force. They're going out there building mentorship programs. Like it's so much so that, you know, trying to wrap our hands around it and say, how do we bring it all back to a place and make things, you know, efficient and smooth. But it's really the intersection of all the work that we're doing across the teams. And trying to figure out, you know, at the same time, we've got our social justice movement happening. There's a lot of xenophobia that's happening within the Asian community because of COVID. And so they're facing it. So we've got multiple communities that are that are just caught and challenged at the same time. So for me, it's that allyship and connecting across like how can we be an ally to each other? And it's also learning, I would say, like the unconscious bias. So, yes, our community, the black community. There's a lot to be done. there's a long way to go. It's not just corporate it's embedded in society racism. but at the same time I think within our own community we've got our own biases that we don't necessarily always tap into or talk to and it can it be with other races and you know and, and gender biases and all that. So I'd say unconscious bias and intersectionality are, are the
1: top two of my on my soapbox. So another intersectionality you have and you've touched on it is you're a mother. You (laughs) have two wonderful kids and, you know, we have so many titles and we like tuck our cape in during the day, working moms or moms in general. And I really want to focus our discussion now on that role and, and DEI work in particular. So another fun fact about tracy and i mentioned that she's like the mayor of austin and people do call tracy the mayor of austin but she's quite a connected person in austin in the philanthropic space just civically very engaged very involved and so i've seen your work supporting new parents in particular as a board member of partners in parenting here in austin and I just would love for you to tell about that organization and how you got involved.
2: Yeah, certainly. Partners in Parenting has been awesome. So like I mentioned, I moved to Austin. I was eight months pregnant, literally on the last flight that my doctor gave me permission to fly on. I was not trying to disconnect from Connecticut at the time. And I said, I'm not spending my summer pregnant in Austin, Texas. It'll be too hot. So the one person that I knew was three weeks ahead of me in pregnancy and so when I got here, she gave me all the information, doctors, nanny, like any and everything that you can think of, that was my go-to. And then we quickly connected with Mocha Moms and they had a chapter here in Austin and I was working from home and I only took a short leave. I mean, this was in 2010 and I was working remotely and I said, well, I'll be working at the house anyway so I can go back sooner. Probably mistake number one, but I, I know I did it after nine weeks. I went back and what I loved about partners and parenting, and it it didn't exist then, I had to build my own village. So like one relationship at a time, find who had children similarly age, who had similar thought practices and parenting and behaviors, and kind of build that community up. So that way, my husband and I had somebody that we could reach out to randomly with different questions that was within Touch all of our families back east. So we were the only two that were here that are here in Texas. And Partners in Parenting does just that. And so that's what really excited me about them. They build a a village for new parents. And so we bring parents together when in non COVID times it was in person and the groups would move from home to home. All of the parents had babies that were born within typically a three month window of each other. So they were similarly aged. Now they do it over Zoom, of course, like the rest of the world, but it's great. And it's, it's really, it's peer facilitation. So you have someone who comes in and they talk about all the basics, sleeping, eating, partnerships, you know, getting out of the house, dating. For me, they always bring me in for traveling. When you travel twice a month with a newborn for two years, (laughs) back and forth to the airport, like you learn the tricks. I always say like, I, I pumped, I pumped on trains, on planes on boats, while driving, crossing bridges, on buses. And I always said, I'm going to write a book about the adventures and breastfeeding, but that's exactly what Partners in Parenting does. And it's a very, very minimal investment to join the group. But we also now, over the years, have built up our financial support networks. And so that way we provide free programming as well. So we partner with local organizations and YMCAs, AISD, different school districts, And go into the school where parents can come in and also have that support network in English. And we also have many Spanish speaking groups.
1: From your work in Partners in Parenting and the concept of bringing like your whole self to work, which includes, you know, being a parent or as I've read recently, like, you know, parenting while working from home or parenting while dot, dot, dot. Should an employer, and I just wonder if this even crossed your, your involvement in partners and parenting, like should an employer see and support that dynamic, that intersectionality in employees or should employers completely stay out of it?
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's a way to avoid it. Right. In this very moment. And I'm talking to you two, I am like hiding out in my bedroom corner and my, office that I'm in, my daughter walks in at random times, you know, and, and I tell employees and teammates too, don't ever apologize for the presence of your child. That's unnecessary, right? It's, we all, we're real people and we have lives. And I think for those industries or those different types of, as I just say, functional areas that didn't have the ability to work from home before, this is new to a lot of people. And I think it's an unrealistic expectation for someone to say, we need you to go to room, close the door and pretend that life isn't happening around you for the next, you know, eight to 10 hours. That's, that's unrealistic. And you burn employees out like that as well, right? So you want the best of your people. And that might mean that for a three hour block during the day, they have to turn work off so that they can focus on family. So that way later in the day, they can fully focus on work and give you the, their best selves. So yeah, I don't think it's possible really for an employer not to acknowledge the fact that family exists and caretaking, right? It's not just for our children. I'm soon moving into a phase in my life where I'll be caretaking for my parents, you know, and that's also another, another dynamic. And like I often say, no one prepa- people prepare you, right? Partners in parenting, they prepare you to parent your children but no one prepares you to parent your parents or to be in that sandwich generation where you're raising children but you're also on the flip helping your parents adjust to, you know, whatever dynamics they have going on.
1: What does parent support look like in these times? Like you mentioned George Floyd, we've mentioned him and Brianna Taylor and like so many other nameless victims of, of murder at the hands of, you know, police officers throughout the country. And again, just like the captive audience that has been created because of COVID, it just feels like, you know, an opportunity where you have everybody's attention. And I just wonder, did parents support in PIP look like conversations about race and, and, and inclusivity?
2: Yeah, so the power I think of PIP and other organizations like it has really been to help avoid postpartum depression as well, right? So there's a lot of focus there. So a lot of the work that was done, the curriculum that's written that we utilize through our facilitation is focused around like how do we help prevent isolation? How do we create this village of comfort, right? You, you can say it, it literally is based in communities and in neighborhoods. And so, you know, you're, you're geo-organized. So within like a three, five mile radius. So there's going to be economic challenges. when We talk about social economic, how our neighborhoods are, are constructed or how they're built in essence. So there are some challenges there. I would say the conversation, I think has definitely shifted there some. I think until people really pull back and have those honest conversations, they kind of lived in this protective bubble. So what, what happened in, in with George Floyd's murder, I think, has opened a ton of eyes. You know, parents, I hear even when I look in my neighborhood parents' chat group, there are more conversations about how do we talk to our children about race. How do we talk about systemic racism? How do we talk about the murders that happen? How do we talk about the negative things that have happened with police or just citizen vigilantes that go out and do their own thing? And so it's been, a, it's been a huge awakening, but at the same time, a lot of people are isolated in their own spaces. And so it's really requiring people, like it's forcing them to go out beyond their own network, finding those spaces and those places to connect with people that are different than them and not in person, right, on Zoom. And so I think one of the things that have come out of being isolated in a pandemic is that people now have the time to go and do things that they normally wouldn't. Normally like we're we're running around or going from activity to activity as soon as we leave work and we get home and we crash, but now there is some of that extra space. You know, They're watching the news more, they're seeing what's happening and they're engaging a lot more in what's what's going on in the community and how, not necessarily what's happening in the community, but they're seeing how it's impacting people that they live around or live near and folks are being more open. So that's, that's, that's a benefit of the times for sure.
3: Yeah. Helen and I have talked about how we think that this is why we've seen it be more impactful this year because everyone has had been at home and had the time and space to really reflect on kind of what's going on. I'm curious what that looked like at IBM, what kind of conversations were had like internally and what kind of support networks were provided within these different communities that you you talked about earlier?
2: Yeah, so I w- very quickly they jumped, I think, to the cause, right, so because diversity and inclusion has been ingrained with IBM for decades, there was already an established platform, right? There was an already established network of of support that existed. So for the black community in particular, we did send out, you know, support groups, you know, you have access to talk to therapists, you have access to if you need to take a leave. When certain instances happened to with Breonna Taylor, we immediately reached out like myself, chief DNI officer, our co-chairs of our Black Executive Council, who are like the top Black executives in the company, we did a WebEx call with our community members in Kentucky, in West Virginia, and Ohio, all the surrounding area to just check in and see how they're feeling and have open conversation, dialogue, see how we could support pretty immediately an embrace pledge. And so if you think of the word embrace, that's kind of the, the branding that we're using in the moment. So embrace EM. B and then parentheses, R-A-C-E, close parentheses, is what the platform has become. So it's taken a lot of the work that we've been doing and it's formalized it strategically. And so that's running through all functional areas, all business units. Within Embrace, there are four platforms that we have. So we have representation and transparency. And so that talks about talent and retention, promotion, Recruitment; those are the core of that pillar. We also have creating economic opportunity, so that's the work that we're doing with HBCUs, our million-dollar investments, and building quantum technology on HBCU campuses. Making sure that we're connecting our BRGs to campuses in their local areas, and you know, just ensuring that we're nurturing in a strategic way those relationships that go uh, throughout. Also leading in good technology is our third pillar. And there, basic things, words matter, right? So we're not talking blacklisting anymore. You know, we're not talking, we're not using words that have negative connotation that engineers have traditionally used. Like when you blacklist or you delist the technology, there's a whole movement there. We got rid of any racial ID technology that we had. We stopped selling that to police departments and security systems. So there's no more facial recognition using our technology that goes because we understand how unintentionally, but how racism can be embedded in those technologies, right? So there are significant efforts there in looking at the technology that we provide to our clients and to other businesses to make sure that it it makes sense for what we want to do. And then we also do call, call for code, which is our newest initiative. That takes it's open source. We bring in developers from anywhere to build code, code that helps work against systemic racism, and so that's one of the brand new initiatives. And then lastly, we've got social justice policy advocacy, and so that's all the work that we're doing with government affairs and congressional caucuses, and you know, writing letters to our incoming president and vice president. And so. It's from all levels, there's there's been that involvement and that support has been building. We have monthly town halls with our Black community and we've got a pretty and they're global. So if you think about the number of employees that IBM has, but it's specific, it's specifically surrounding the Black community. And then, you know, like everyone, kind of like those keynote addresses where we bring in different speakers. So there's a there's a consistent drum, drum beat that happens.
3: I love the intentionality with all of those pieces and how, you know, it's, It's looking at the greater good and the change for the future. What IBM is doing, right? Just the idea that you would think about the use of the technology and not selling it when you recognize that that is going to have a negative impact. That is the kinds of changes that we're talking about for this greater good and for larger social change that we all want to see happen. But that really has to start internally in an organization if we want it to happen that way.
2: And they're not boasting about it. And I think that that was also the struggle. Like when we talk about, you know, there's that, I think, immediate, let us see your board, let us see your statistics, let us see your promotion rates. We haven't really talked about that externally before. I don't know if IBM to that degree will, but I will say our diversity and inclusion report that comes out each year, they did an amended one this fall that went to depths that we've never seen before internally and HR is clearly seen it, but not the broader organization. And so that was shared in a way that hasn't been done. So, you know, I think people want to see it and that's the first one, like our pillar representation and transparency, like we're being as transparent as we can. So it's clear and that people understand what's needed. And I think it's most important too, for the allies to see like, hey, we need to talk mentorship and sponsorship and not just within our community, but across communities to support one another. Like, it's not just my, my mentor that looks like me, similar hairstyle, similar skin tone. That No, I need, we also have sponsors and mentors that live in other communities. And that's where that intersectionality plays a, a significant role.
1: 30 years ago, Kimberly Williams Crenshaw conceptualized and coined the term intersectionality which is an analytical framework for understanding how aspects of a person's social and political identities combine to create different modes of discrimination and privilege. Enter Tracy Burmese, who personifies this term. She built a successful career as a senior marketer, and her career shift and personal intersections as a mom, wife, and daughter, and on and on and on, really bring an interesting perspective to her work and isn't that truly what diversity is and everything that corporate environments need during our chat with tracy it became clear what corporate strategies look like to embed dei in its daily practice and commitments companies in partnership with government affairs compliance legislation legal employee resource groups and hr all work together to move this work forward It's bigger than a board seat, but we'll take that too. That's a start. It makes me really think about the intersectionalities that corporate entities hold for their dynamic workforce and how they influence real change at work and at home. Stay tuned for more riveting episodes this season that are sure to provoke deep thought, reflection, and we hope, action. Stay tuned to the blog and social for when those new episodes drop. right everyone you know what time it is remember whatever you're drinking coffee tea or something stronger we hope it will lead to fresh ideas that will help make work better for us all cheers
0: thank you for listening to this episode of hrt as your thoughts from today's episode steve Share with us what you are brewing using the hashtag VillanovaHRT. That's hashtag VillanovaHRTEA. HRT is brought to you by Villanova HRD. To learn more about the graduate programs in human resource development at Villanova University and for all the links and notes from today's episode, visit the Villanova HRD blog at VillanovaHRD.com.